We're going to be in Matthew chapter 9 this morning. Matthew chapter 9. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles, starting in verse 18. As you're turning there, say this. You know, so often we, we see leaders in this world come to positions of power and authority. And the, the crazy thing is, when we, when we look at those leaders, so often we think, how on earth did that person get into that position of authority? Certainly, there has to be someone more fit for that position. So often, people come to positions of, of power and authority uh, through lies and deception and manipulation, corruption, and then they use their position of authority. Instead of, instead of serving the people that they're, that they're in leadership over, they use their position for, for selfish purposes, only to take advantage of those below them. Rather than fighting evil and defending their people from evil, Sadly, what has often been the case in world history is that those very leaders promote evil. They promote evil. And when, when we need a, a leader who will bring peace and prosperity and freedom, often our very leaders are the ones who, who attack these things and take them from the people. But truth be told, even the best human leader could only maybe bring peace and prosperity and freedom for a short amount of time. You know, just when things might seem to be going well and we actually have a good leader, even if, even if that were the case, it would only be temporary. There's always death, which casts this long shadow over our prosperity. The grave is the, the enemy that no leader can defeat. No group of scientists can, can trick death into staying away. Though in their arrogance, they might presume to do that. Friends, we need a better leader. We need a perfect leader. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew 9. And we're going to read of such a leader this morning. Such a king that can deliver us and, and bring freedom and prosperity and peace and even life itself that will never be taken away, that can deliver his people from the greatest of their enemies. Start reading with me, Matthew 9 and verse 18. While he, Jesus, while he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come, lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. 
And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of the demons. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Well, the main idea of the message this morning is that Jesus is the king of mercy. Jesus is the king of mercy. You see, in this section of Matthew's gospel, he's revealing to us who Jesus is in a rather indirect way. He's telling us all these things that Jesus is doing. He's describing him to us, what he did, what he was like, in order to show us that Jesus fits the description of the one that had been long promised and long awaited, the Messiah, the chosen one, the son of David, the heir to the throne of Israel, who would bring in God's kingdom. Matthew's showing us that Jesus fits the description. Now, Matthew, you know, he could have just written us a short note about Jesus. He could have just said, dear people of the world, Jesus is trustworthy. Believe in him and be saved. Take my word for it. I know him personally, and he saved me. The end. The Gospel of Matthew. But he didn't. Instead, Matthew's putting together an intricate puzzle, piece by piece. And each piece is is beautiful and detailed, and it says something profound about who Jesus is and what he's come to do. And many of Matthew's puzzle pieces come from a puzzle that was started, but was missing some final pieces. It was an incomplete puzzle. And that that incomplete puzzle, if you will, was the Old Testament scriptures. 
the books of the Bible from Genesis to Malachi. And as you read through the Old Testament, starting in Genesis, you, you start to fit the pieces together and, and you will see, you know, we need a, a certain piece to go here to fulfill this prophecy. There, there needs to be a, a king that's going to come and he's going to be like this. But you read through and, and you think, you know, is it, is it David? Is he the one? Is he God's promised king? Is he the deliverer? And then you see, well, it can't be David. I mean, he, he ruined God's kingdom. Look what he did. He brought all kinds of strife and, and war because of his personal sinning. We need a better king. Maybe it's David's son, Solomon. And things start well for Solomon, and then things go bad for him. He starts worshiping all these idols. As you go through the Old Testament, though, you, you see these, the, the puzzle coming together. But when you come to the end of Malachi, there's still some missing pieces. There's still something that needs to, to come, someone that needs to come in order to finish the picture. And so Matthew picks up on this, and, and a lot of what he's doing is he's showing us, hey, look, you know that, that missing piece here? Here it is. It's Jesus. So these pieces that Matthew's giving us picture the Savior of the world, the King of kings, the perfect king, the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. And so the piece of the puzzle that we have here today, again, is that Jesus is the King of mercy. And, and what we read earlier from Ezekiel 34, a lot of those themes you'll see kind of picked up here in Matthew chapter 9. So we're going to take this in two points this morning. First of all, we're going to look at the mercy of the king. We're going to examine what Jesus does and, and the way he heals these people. And then secondly, our second point would be to focus on the king of the mercy. The mercy of the king and the king of the mercy. We're going to think briefly about who he is. And we're going to go back to Ezekiel 34 and show how he fulfills what Ezekiel 34 was promising. So first of all, point number one, the mercy of the king. The mercy of the king. Consider what Jesus does here in, in Matthew 9. His mercy is seen first when this ruler comes to him on behalf of his daughter. And this ruler, we learn from other accounts, the, the parallel accounts of Mark and Luke, was a ruler of the synagogue, the Jewish uh, kind of house of worship, their, their church, if you will, a ruler of the synagogue named Jairus. Now, this would have meant that Jairus, this, this ruler was part of the religious establishment that was becoming increasingly hostile to Jesus. But Jesus didn't reject this man for all that. This man comes in desperation. He's got, he's got a need. His daughter is at the point of death. And, and Matthew kind of, uh, he, he cuts out a lot of the details that, that we see in Mark and Luke. And he just, he tells us, he gets right to the point saying, you know, this, this daughter is, is dead. And so here was pain. Here was loss. Here was need. Here was a man who recognized a situation that was beyond him. And he thinks, I'm going I'm to go to Jesus and see what Jesus can do for me. And he has great confidence as he comes. He says, Jesus, come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Fathers, is it Father's Day? Let's learn a lesson from this father. 
let's recognize that each one of our children in, in a similar way are, are in a, a condition that is beyond our power to remedy. Each, each one of us is born into this world spiritually dead, spiritually dead. And, and fathers, as, as much truth as you teach your kids, you cannot reach into their hearts and touch their souls and, and turn their hearts toward God. You can't do it. And so like this father, yes, teach your, teach your children, present the gospel to them because that's how they can come to salvation. But ultimately, you can't cause them to believe on Christ. And so bring your children to Jesus. Go to Jesus in prayer and pray to him that he would work the miracle and save the souls of your children. Go to, go to Jesus, fathers. Only he, can, only he can work that miracle. Now, before Jesus gets to the house of this father, the story is interrupted. We see that there's, there's this poor woman who has a, a bleeding disorder. And the, the other gospel writers, Mark and Luke, tell us that she'd used up all the money she had trying to find a cure. And this woman doesn't have a father that goes to Jesus on her behalf. She's on her own. We learn from verse 19 that this woman had suffered from this bleeding disorder for 12 years. 12 years. And this would have likely made her very anemic, iron deficient, weak. And this ongoing bleeding was likely the type that according to the Old Testament law and in, in Jewish culture, would have made her ceremonially unclean. You know, not, that, not meaning that she just was dirty and needed to take a bath, but that in a spiritual and ceremonial sense, she was banned from the house of God. She couldn't go to, to the place of worship and worship with God's people. And even as we look back to the Old Testament law, she had to be very careful even being around other people. So this bleeding disorder would have, would have really isolated her. She probably dealt with a lot of loneliness over these past 12 years. This poor woman sneaks up behind Jesus, too afraid and embarrassed perhaps to approach him directly and to, to tell him of her condition. And she thinks maybe she'll just sneak up behind him and kind of steal a cure unnoticed thinking, if I can just reach out and touch the little fringe of his cloak, you know, right near, right near his feet as he's passing by, I'll be healed. Seems like she's, her faith is mixed with even a little bit of superstition, perhaps. And so that's what she does. She comes up, and, and as Jesus is going by, you know, she reaches out, and she touches the fringe of his garment, and she's healed. But Jesus, he is not content to let her be healed like this. So he turns. Look at verse 22. Jesus turned and seeing her, what does he say? Like, how dare you? You didn't even ask. No, that's not what he says. Jesus turns and he has words of, of comfort and encouragement for this poor woman. He, he turns to her and the first thing he says to her is, take heart. Take heart. And then he calls her daughter. So he gives her, her confidence and, and encouragement 
saying, don't be afraid. Take heart. He doesn't want her to think that she was somehow unwelcome to come to him for healing. That she must sneak up and and catch a, a blessing that he might not have time to really give her. Or that he might be unwilling to give her. No, Jesus pauses to reassure her. Take heart. She must not fear coming to him any longer. He calls her daughter. Letting her know that, you know, even if she had been lonely and isolated, she now has family. And she can come to him as a a loving father anytime she wants. Take heart, daughter. You know, God is a father to the fatherless. This is the compassion of our God, that he, he brings in those who have no father. And so let us learn from that. And those of us who have been saved by his grace, let us not only seek to raise up our own children, but by his grace, be looking around for others who may not have a father in their lives. And perhaps we can, can be an encouragement to them. Perhaps we can show them something of the love of God that God has shown us. Let us be, by God's grace, fathers to the fatherless. There are so many in this world that are suffering and that are lonely and alone that that don't have that. So Jesus, he wasn't just content to heal her body, but he intended to, to heap blessing and comfort on her soul as well. Jesus seeks to to honor her faith. Charles Spurgeon says this. He's commenting on the the statement where where Jesus says, your faith has made you well. Charles Spurgeon said, thus Jesus put the crown upon the head of her faith because her faith had already set the crown on his head. And so she came empty. She came with no money to pay the great physician only with, with hope and a, a trembling faith and a trembling hand to reach out in desperation. And she walked away with more than she bargained for. And isn't that true of us? Perhaps some of you have reached out to Jesus in, in a last-ditch effort, and you've walked away with more than you've ever imagined that you would receive. This is the goodness and the mercy of our God. This is the mercy of the king. Perhaps one of the reasons why here in chapter 9 of Matthew there's such an emphasis on Jesus's miracles is that oftentimes we're prone to think of of God's mercy as as something we have kind of kind of bargain for. We kind of fall into this pattern of bargaining with God. Like I I need something from God, but I know I don't deserve it. I know I've not been living like I should. So I'm going to I'm going to get my act together. I'm going to start coming to church more faithfully. I'm going to start giving more. And then maybe I can come to God and, and he'll, he'll show me mercy. He'll, he'll be kind to me. What did this poor woman have to offer Jesus? She'd already spent all her money. For which of these miracles did Jesus ask to be paid? For which of them did he say, all right, now that'll be, that'll be 50 bucks. None of them. This this woman comes and she has nothing to give in exchange for her healing. Her only hope, she thinks, is to steal a cure. 
And consider how Jesus pauses to to blow that notion out of the water. And it's a lesson for us that we can see his heart of mercy, full of compassion for the helpless, full of pity for those who cannot earn his kindness or repay his kindness. Because truthfully, friends, none of us ever can. What can we give to God for all that he gives to us? And yet he doesn't ask repayment. He simply calls us to come. And he says to us, take heart. So Jesus goes on from here, and he he shows up at the house of this ruler. And the funeral proceedings are already underway. Now, in these days, funerals weren't marked by, you know, quiet music and hushed tones, but loud wailing and mourning, and even instruments playing kind of discordant, off-key music to express the emotional turmoil and the loss that the family was experiencing. The Jewish Talmud had a rule in it stating that even the poorest of Jewish families should not have less than two flutes and one wailing woman at their funerals. So they'd even, they'd even hire people to come and, and make noise on behalf of, of, of their daughter and their, their loved one that had passed to, to show the community the pain that they were experiencing. But Jesus shows up and he proceeds to, to break up the funeral. You've heard of wedding crashers, perhaps, but Jesus was a funeral crasher. He'd come to the funeral and he'd he'd break things up. He'd interrupt the the solemn occasion. Before he was done, the dearly departed was the dearly returned. Mourning and sadness had to give way to joy and gladness when Jesus showed up. You know, death is only sleep to Jesus. Notice he says here, the girl is not dead, but sleeping. Now, medically speaking, she was dead. Her her pulse had stopped. She wasn't in a coma or something. You can see the response of the people here, how they they laugh. They think this is ridiculous. Like, what do you mean she isn't dead? Like, don't you know anything? But to Jesus, her death was as temporary as a nap. To to him, her death was as sleep. Jesus didn't concern himself to to defend himself against their mocking. He didn't pause to to say, listen, guys, I know what I'm talking about. You know, they they laughed at him, and he he just put them out of the room. He was focused on the task ahead of him. He was focused on showing mercy. Friends, as as we go about God's work, oftentimes there will be those who will mock us, who will laugh at us. And it's not always the wisest thing to to try to defend ourselves. Sometimes we just got to put our head down and and keep at the task before us. Jesus put them outside and the room became quiet and there was this poor little body laying on the bed, pale, cold, cold dead. Jesus came near and he he took her little cold hand in his hand. And when he did, her life returned to her and she arose, sitting up as easily as she just woke up from an afternoon nap. She sat up in her bed and imagine the, the joy of the family as the little girl was reunited with them. This funeral wasn't just interrupted, it was canceled. 
This father had, had come to Jesus, trusting in Jesus, believing that he could do this. And he proved trustworthy. Even death itself must bow before the king of life. This is the mercy of the king. Jesus' mercy is clearly seen in the healing of, of two blind men, starting in verse 27. Blindness was quite common in ancient times. And there was nothing that could cure it. There were no eye surgeries that you could get to, to, to cure blindness. Nothing short of a miracle could deal with this condition. And so you can imagine the eager desperation of these two blind men following Jesus. Maybe, maybe there's a big crowd around him and, and they're kind of in the back, kind of feeling their way along, listening. I still hear him. They're, they're crying out, son of David, have mercy on us. Son of David, have mercy on us. And, and Jesus, he doesn't answer right away, which is kind of odd. And it doesn't really tell us why. Perhaps he was testing their faith. We know that that's true of us. Sometimes we pray, we ask God for something, and he doesn't give it to us right away. It's not that he doesn't hear. Perhaps he's testing our faith. But these men, they, they pursue Jesus even into the house. They, they come in before him. And Jesus doesn't chase them away. He doesn't say, look, guys, I am tired. It's been a long day. I'm about to eat supper. Can you come back tomorrow? No. When do we ever hear of Jesus saying something like that? Jesus would often stay up really late, healing all who came to him. So they came and, and they, they said, have mercy on us. And Jesus responds to them. And he says, do you believe that I am able to do this? And they say, yes, Lord, we, we, we do. We believe that you can do this. Now, Jesus didn't ask them how blind they were. He didn't ask them how long they'd been blind. He didn't ask them how much money they had. All he asked them was if they believed that he could do this. He asked no money in return. Unlike many uh, faith healers that you might see on, on TV, Jesus wasn't a charlatan like that. They asked for mercy, and Jesus wasn't in business for money. He was in the business of showing mercy, giving freely to those who could not repay him. And in many cases, were downright ungrateful. What do these men do? Do they follow Jesus' instructions after he heals them? He says, listen, don't tell people about this. And what do they do? They go right out, and they start spreading the word everywhere. Now, it's kind of odd sometimes. We read, Why wouldn't Jesus want, want people to know that he was doing miracles. Like, what, what's up with that? And there, there's different explanations for it. I think it might have had something to do with the fact that Jesus didn't want to be misunderstood. Already, you know, there, there were times when people were trying to take him by force and make him king, like, like a political ruler, uh, so, that, so that he could lead them against the Roman Empire, you know, throw, overthrow Caesar, free them from their, their, uh, their, their oppression of the Romans. But Jesus came on a different mission. He wasn't trying to be that kind of king yet. Jesus had a path to the throne, but it, it went up the Calvary Hill. 
And he would wear the crown of thorns before he would wear the crown of glory. And he already he was being flocked by the crowds. And so maybe that's why he, he didn't want them to spread the word. There were, there were times we read about in the other gospels where Jesus couldn't even go freely from, from place to place because the crowds were just so crowding around him. And Jesus didn't come just to heal, but to preach the gospel. That was, that was his, his primary mission, to preach and then to go to the cross. So that, that could be why he didn't want them spreading the word. But whatever the case may be, these, these men were, they went right out and they disobeyed him. Now, Jesus knew that, and he still healed them. He still showed them mercy. This is the mercy of the king. Now, if people followed us around begging, standing at our doors, pursuing us even into our place of rest, we probably wouldn't have nearly as much patience with them as Jesus had. But again, this is the mercy of the king. Jesus showed us a mercy, the like of which this world has never seen and, and never will see. Friends, all of the, the healing that Jesus does in this passage and all throughout the gospel, like I say, it's, it's mercy. Jesus isn't coming and giving people what they were worthy of receiving. These blind men didn't deserve to be healed. None of us deserve to be shown mercy. Romans 6.23 teaches that the the wages of sin is death. That's what our sin deserves. We deserve not to be healed, not to be given life. We deserve to die and then to sink lower than the grave to the second death of hell. And so Jesus coming and doing all the things he did, restoring sight to the blind, all of that was mercy, mercy, mercy. It could not be deserved. It could not be earned. This brings us to our second point. We've considered the mercy of the king. Now let's consider the king of the mercy. The king of the mercy. Who is this person? Who is this person so full of mercy and compassion and kindness with such great power and yet yet spending time with the most unworthy and unlikely of people? healing the most ungrateful people even. As I said earlier, this collection of stories and miracles is it's, it's giving us a missing piece to the puzzle of the Old Testament. We see once again that Jesus is fulfilling ancient scriptures of the, the law and the prophets. From the, the cryptic promise of Genesis 3.15 that there would be a coming one, a coming descendant of of Eve who would crush the head of the enemy, Satan. Two shadows and types in the Old Testament that anticipated the king, such as King David himself, who put himself between the people of God and their seemingly invincible foe, Goliath, and single-handedly fought on behalf of his people and laid low that giant as they trembled in fear on the sidelines. We need a champion like that. We need a king like that. A shepherd king who will will shepherd his people with kindness, leading us beside the still waters, 
leading us to the green pastures, who will defeat our enemies and fight our battles for us. We need such a king. And the Old Testament was showing our need for such a king. As we read Ezekiel 34, and we we see there the, the bad shepherds, the bad rulers of God's people. And then God's promise to to step in and that he himself would be their shepherd. Ezekiel 34, 5 says, it speaks of the sheep being scattered and helpless. It says, so they were scattered because there was no shepherd and they became food for the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. Here we see God's compassion for his people. And and his determination that he would judge these evil rulers, these unfaithful shepherds. And what do we see here in Matthew 9? Some of this same language from Ezekiel 34 is picked up here. Look at verse 36 of chapter 9. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Friends, whenever we are reading through the New Testament, and there'll be, there'll be a phrase like that that's, that's echoed from the Old Testament, we need to take note. Oftentimes, uh, some of your Bibles may have a little, a little footnote or something that shows some other scriptures that this is kind of linked to. I think that's even true of, in these pew Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, feel free to take one of those and, and use it, keep it for yourself, give it to a friend. But whenever we, we see some of these echoes from the Old Testament, we need to take note because Matthew here is trying to tell us something. He's saying, hey, remember Ezekiel 34? Remember how God's God's sheep, his people were scattered, helpless, like, like sheep without a shepherd? Jesus, seeing that, he is the good shepherd. What do we, what does Jesus himself say of himself? He said, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. God promised to give his people a better shepherd in in Ezekiel 34. And in Ezekiel 34, it's it's interesting. He said he he promised David, which is meant symbolically, not not literal David, the son of Jesse, the king of of Israel. It's not meaning that he's going to reincarnate David from the dead and and make David the shepherd. This is symbolic. And What he's meaning here is that the the son of David, the true and better David, the one who David's life and his kingship and his kingdom was kind of a picture of, a, a foreshadowing of, an anticipation of, this true and better David, this David named Jesus Christ, would come and that he would rescue the flock of God and he would be the king. God had said in Ezekiel 34, I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey. I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. But then he also also speaks of he himself filling that role as the shepherd of his flock. So how can God say that he's going to set over them his servant David? And then over here he says, I will be your shepherd. Which one? Is it, is it this person over here or is it God himself? 
Is it this David figure or is it God? And the answer is found in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is fully God and fully man. He's the son of David, the true and better David, and he is God in the flesh. And so Jesus is the one that is predicted and and prophesied of in Ezekiel 34, who we now see here in Matthew, doing what a good shepherd is to do, healing, binding up, protecting, delivering people from the oppression of, of demons, protecting his flock, shepherding them, giving them true teaching so that they can walk in the right way, guiding them to sure paths. You know, a lot of what Jesus did when he came was teaching people, preaching to them. We see that even in in this passage here in verse 35. He went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease. So he, he did a lot of healing, but his primary mission was to teach and to show them the truth of God. Well, why didn't Jesus stay and why didn't he heal more than he did? That's probably a question on a lot of our minds. You know, couldn't Jesus have stayed for like 50 years and healed more people? Why didn't he go on a healing tour all around the world and heal people in China and Australia and in France? Why, why didn't he do that? Why did he only stay in the kind of in this one little region and heal people only for three years? Why didn't he stay? Why isn't he with us today healing? Well, the part of the answer to that is that there's, there's a much greater healing that needed to be worked, a much greater healing. There are worse diseases than the ones that Jesus healed here. There's worse blindness than not being able to see with your eyes. There's a worse death than even being laid in the grave. There's a deep spiritual disease that Jesus came to cure. And we see that even in the Pharisees who saw his miracles, who witnessed them with their eyes, but were so blind, they were so dead to him that they even look at his mercy and call him evil. We see, we see the problem, this deep spiritual disease as well in the, the fickle crowds who wanted his blessings. They wanted to be fed with physical food and they wanted him to heal their sicknesses, but they didn't see their sin problem. And then they even called for Jesus's death when he didn't fit their agenda. Friends, as much and as hard as it is to hear, we're more like the crowds. We're more like these Pharisees than we'd like to admit. Apart from God's grace, apart from him opening our blind eyes of our, of our hearts, we too would have looked at his miracles and, and said, he's evil. We would have made any excuse we could to, to run from him and to hold on to, to our sinful desires. Apart from God's grace, the Bible teaches that we despise God. Psalm 14 says that no one seeks for God. We run from him and we're we're unwilling to believe on him, even when faced with mountains of evidence like the Pharisees had. We're irrational in our hatred of God. And and the the reason our hearts are, are like this is because we're too in love with our sin. 
we know that Jesus comes as, as king. And when he comes and he confronts us as king, we're too busy sitting on that throne. We've come to love that throne too much. We want to rule our own lives. We don't want him. We don't want to step off and let him sit there. And so we do anything we can to, to keep him away. Friends, this is, this is the problem of the human heart. And it takes a miracle of God's grace to cure. This is why we needed the cross. This is what Jesus came to do. Only the power of God's love and mercy could free us from our mortal attraction to sin. It would have taken us to the very pits of hell. Jesus came not just to heal bodies, not just to put a temporary hold on death, but to but to give eternal life to all who believe in him. He came to accomplish the greater miracle. So what Christ did in his healing ministry here is just, it was just an appetizer. It was just to, to demonstrate his power, to show us what he was capable of, and to give us a little taste for the believer of what was to come, what is coming, what we hope in. Friends, praise be to God. This is not the only healing of Jesus that we will see. If we believe on him, we too will be raised to life like this little girl. One day the dwelling place of God will be with man and he will be with them as their God. Revelation 21 gives us a beautiful picture of this. It says he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Just like how he turned this funeral into a joyous occasion. The parents and the mourners stopped weeping and and turned to rejoicing. One day, Jesus, if you have trusted in him, he will wipe away every tear from your eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. He will make all things new. The day is coming. The the golden age draws near. For the believer, Christ's return is our blessed hope. Do you long for that day? Do you see that the pain and the loss of this world, and does that make you hunger and thirst for that day? Do you believe on the one who is able to save your soul as well as your body? to give life eternal that cannot be taken away? Do you trust in him this morning? Now, I began this message noting that the leaders that we often find ourselves under in this world are are often oppressive and unworthy people, sinful and selfish people. People, if we're honest with ourselves, that are a lot like us, apart from God's grace. And the sad fact is that we don't deserve to be under good leaders. Friends, I know that's hard to hear, but we don't deserve good leaders. In our sin, we've been traitors to the best leader, the Lord of all, the perfect king. And we deserve only his wrath. We deserve to be turned over to the leaders we've chosen We don't deserve his mercy and protection and deliverance. Friends, we often find ourselves in chains of slavery, 
But if we're honest with ourselves, it's chains that we've chosen and that we love. What I'm speaking of is our sin, which enslaves us. Our first parents rebelled against having God as their king. They had it all in the garden. They had God as their king, the perfect king. And instead, they chose to obey the serpent. They chose to rebel against God. And we have have followed in their footsteps. We have rejected the king of glory in our sin. And we would still be there if not for the miracle of God's grace. But God in his mercy determined to send a king anyways, to, to send his own son as the king of kings to establish his kingdom and to admit sinners into that kingdom, to to bring rebels back and to make them heirs of the kingdom of heaven where we can live in safety from his wrath and delivered from our enemies and have the eternal joy and peace and freedom that we so desperately need. But the cost of of entrance into that kingdom, the cost was the cross. Jesus, the king of life, had to wear the crown of thorns before he could wear the crown of glory, before we could have crowns to cast at his feet. He had to suffer the pain and the mockery and the shameful death of the cross in order that his people, all who believe on him, surrendering their lives to him as their Lord, casting themselves completely on his mercy so that we could be saved. And so the question for you is, if you're listening here this morning, I want to just assume that everyone in this room is a Christian. I was not a Christian. I went to church all my life, and I was saved at 15 after years of hearing the gospel. The the question for you is, have you surrendered to him as, as your king? Will you trust him today? I pray that you will. There is no greater king so worthy of our trust. Jesus is the king of mercy infinitely exalted in glory as the God of heaven, and yet condescending so low as to be a friend to the most unworthy, people like you and me, with love and compassion. Those who put their hope and their confidence in him to save them will not be ashamed. Like this father who who came to Jesus on behalf of his daughter, we will not be left without hope. Jesus will come. He will give us life, life eternal that will never be taken away. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we confess that because of our sin, we do not deserve to have Christ as our King and to enjoy his protection, to enjoy his deliverance, We don't deserve to have a place in his kingdom, to have a citizenship in heaven. But Lord, he gave up his place willingly and he came, was despised and rejected by men, forsaken. And he took on himself the burden of our guilt so that we could have our burden lifted, so that we could be set free. He was chained under the wrath of God so that we could no longer be chained under the chains of hell and not not have to fear going there forever.
And so, Lord, I pray, I pray that if there's anyone in this room who does not know you as their Lord and Savior, that today they would seek your salvation, that they would look to the cross, that they would look to the one who said it is finished, that they would know that there's nothing they can add, but that Jesus paid it all. And so, Lord, I pray that this morning. And those of us that are saved, help us to take this message of life, this gospel of the kingdom, and help us to go to the to the lost and the dying around us, that they too may come into his kingdom and worship him as their king, for he is the king of mercy, the only worthy king. And we long for his return. In Jesus' name, amen.